Hi, I'm Desiree Nielsen. I'm a registered dietitian and the author of Good for Your Gut, and I'm with SoFlo Vegans. Welcome to the SoFlo Vegans Podcast. We bring you vegan experts from around the world to talk about health, the environment, animal advocacy, and spreading compassion. It's our passion to help you navigate the vegan lifestyle by listening to the experiences of vegan influencers, doctors, and experts. Thanks for listening. This is the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And now your host, Sean Russell. Hey, everybody. This is Sean Russell, and you are listening or watching the Soul Flow Vegans Podcast. And today we have Desiree Nielsen on our show. We're so excited to speak to you after, you know, at the time of this recording, you just launched your book. There's so many amazing topics we're going to talk about. But before we do that, I'm going to stop talking so you can, uh, you know, do an audio audio cue. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But thank you for being on the show. I appreciate you. And we have a tradition on our podcast where the first question that we ask is about your vegan origin story. So. How did this all begin for you? You know, it began a very long time ago uh, when I was a teenager, and I actually became vegetarian first to impress a boy that I liked. (laughs) He played sax. I thought that was pretty cool. I thought if I became a vegetarian, I might impress him. I did not, but the vegetarianism stuck. And so... You know, in my 30s, the more that I learned about industrial agriculture, the more that I sort of connected to people in the plant-based and vegan community, folks like Erin Ireland up here in Vancouver, the more that I realized all of the reasons why I was a vegetarian really were the reasons why I needed to go vegan. And, you know, for me, it was a little bit of a, I was one of those vegetarians who said, oh, I could be vegan except for the cheese. And so I took my time. I needed to improve my cooking skills. I needed to learn, you know, fettuccine Alfredo was one of my favorite meals. I was like, okay, I have to learn how to like make a bomb ass like fettuccine Alfredo, which I've done with cashews and I love it better than the original. And so I needed to take my time and just slowly evolve. And so I did that, gosh, I think like five years ago now. I think it's been five years that I've been fully plant-based and I feel so good in my body. You know, like I'm over 40 and really doubling down on plants has made me feel so energized. It's really sort of sparked my creativity because I had to learn new ways of cooking, which I mean, it just has opened my eyes up to a whole new way of like cooking and eating. And it's such an incredible thing, particularly as a dietitian, to get to share all of these benefits with the people that I serve. And before you decided to go on this journey, when you first went vegetarian, what was your relation to nutrition? You know, how did that play a role in your life? And how did that transform after you made that lifestyle change? You know, it was interesting because going vegetarian was probably the first time in my life that I really thought about food at all. I was one of those, you know, I grew up in a Portuguese household where, you know, we ate a lot of really traditional and really healthful foods. My avô had this huge garden, but they also came to Canada in 1959. So like one night it would be like a caldo verde, which is like packed with kale. And then the next night it was like shake and bake chicken. Uh, So I didn't really think about food. We just ate. 
And when I first went vegetarian, I was like, oh, you could like decide to eat a different way. Like, what's that about? And I honestly think that that's probably the origin story of me ending up as a dietitian because it really opened my eyes to, oh, well, if you can eat a certain way, like, like, what's that mean? Like, what's that mean for your health? What's that mean for your impact on the planet and on animals? And I really started to think about nutrition for the first time in my life. And it sparked a really deep passion, particularly for how changing the way that you eat could help you feel well. And I wanted to be able to share that with others. And right now, I mean, you look at the standard American diet and you, even in the vegan community, I think that is a myth that just by going vegan, you're going to be healthy. And you hear the stories of people who make the attempt and they're like, oh, I got sick, so I'm going to stop eating it. So uh, let's just touch on that a little bit before we go into, we get to the, the gut of the matter. I forced that. So let's talk about that, like dispel that myth that just by going vegan, you're going to be eating healthy. Yeah. And, you know, I think it is a big myth. And it depends on what brings you to the vegan community. If it is for animal rights and, you know, divesting yourself from that traditional agriculture model, you might be like, all I care about is the animals. Give me all the Oreos. And like, if you're, you know, 25, you might not even feel that unwell because young bodies are generally really resilient. But we do actually have data to show that, you know, what is most important is the actual amount of plants that you're eating. You know, the fruits, the vegetables, the nuts, the seeds, the whole grain. And we do actually have some data to show that, you know, that looked at plant-based diets versus people who are vegan, vegetarian, and omnivores. And what that study told us was that people who ranked highest on a plant-based diet index, even if they were omnivores, were healthier than people who didn't, even if they were vegan. And so if you come to veganism, you know, out of a search for a healthier life or longevity, it's really important to note that, yes, absolutely, you can have some like coconut ice cream on the weekends. What matters most is the dietary pattern that you consume as opposed to a single food or a single plate of food. But you do, as a pattern, want to get more of those whole plant foods on your plate. And then that's a Great thing that you just said at the end, it's the whole plant foods. So, you know, I could hear you say having that diversity of plants, but it's like, okay, then that's fried donut versus the glazed donut because I'm going to consider the flower a plant, you know, but the whole foods is important in terms of that. So let's talk about the gut. And actually, before we talk about the gut, let's talk about your book. And that's going to give our listeners some context to a lot of what we're going to be talking about later in the episode. So congratulations on the launch Thank of you. the book and tell it. Yeah. Get, what's the name? What's it about? And um, yeah, let us know um, what's going on with, with, this, with this amazing release. Yeah. So my new book, my new book, baby, is called Good for Your Gut. And it is a full length cookbook. There's over 90 plant based recipes that are designed with digestive health in mind, but honestly, they're just delicious no matter what. If you just need some delicious plant food recipes that are nutrient-dense, they're for you as well. But one of the things that's important to me when I write my books 
is that I give people the why and I give people the tools, particularly in digestive health, because there's so much mythology online about what gut health actually looks like, what's normal, and also what you need to do when problems arise. So the first 100 pages of Good for Your Gut is devoted to teaching you, like, how does your gut work? Like, where exactly is your liver and what does it do? And what is normal versus what is common? Because it's exceedingly common to be constipated, but that's not actually physiologically normal for your body versus, you know what, gas is a fact. And particularly when you eat a more whole food vegan diet, it's normal to like, I don't know, fart every once in a while. But we pathologize this in wellness and saying like, oh my gosh, if you have gas, you must be intolerant to like all of these foods and you need to eliminate all of these foods. But that sets you up for failure. And the gut is, you know, in the last couple of years, I've been fortunate to have a lot of amazing conversations with specialists on this podcast. But one of the things I was fascinated to learn is how important the gut is in terms of just the way your entire body works. You know, it's been called the second brain. It's the gut microbiome is just this fascinating place where all these trillions of things are going on inside of your body. So like, let's start there. Why is the gut so important to us functioning as living beings? Yeah, you know, and that's such a great question because people are like, well, like, who cares? Like, I just eat my food and I absorb my food. And that's the end of it. And even if that's all your digestive tract did, like if that's all your gut did, it is critical because you can't access the iron in those lentils unless your digestive tract digests, absorbs, breaks it down and and helps you get that into your body so your blood cells can use it. That function is, of course, foundational to human life and critical, but your gut's a lot more than that. Your gut actually lies at the intersection between digestive, immune and nervous system health. The reason why we call your gut the second brain is because the nervous system in your gut or the enteric nervous system, is it has more nerve cells than your spinal cord. Like you have a ton of nervous system activity and it dictates everything from the movement, like the normal movement of your gut. Because of course, as soon as we swallow, we give up conscious control of how our gut moves. It's your nervous system that takes over for you. It also dictates neurotransmitter production. So neurotransmitters like serotonin, which most of us think of as like the feel-good neurotransmitter, a whopping 90 to 95% of that, depending on whose numbers you look at, is made in the gut. It's not made in your brain. It's made in the gut. And that serotonin is actually important for how the gut moves. And that's fascinating. And now let's bridge things together. Like how does the how does a plant-based diet impact the health of your gut? You know, plants are everything for digestive health. And we know, and we've had so much research accumulate over the years that if you want a healthier gut now, but also for the rest of your life, you need to feed your gut plants. And the reason for this is like, multiple factors. So the first is fiber. I mean, you've chatted with like Dr. B, we know fiber is so critical for digestive health for a few reasons. The first is that when we consume enough fiber in our diet, it helps to regulate the digestive process. Everything from the amount of time it takes food and therefore waste to move through our bodies to helping to sweep the gut clear because 
the gut cells actually rapidly turn over like anywhere between two and six days. Like our skin is super lazy by comparison because its renewal cycle is weeks long. But when the fiber essentially like sweeps through the gut, it helps to clear out debris that could otherwise make our digestive tract and specifically our gut barrier function a little bit faultier. So those are really, really important factors. The other thing that plants have are a variety of fermentable carbohydrates. So these are things that generally we don't digest and absorb very well, things like fructans in whole wheat. So they stay in the gut. They travel through the gut to your ascending colon where the vast majority of those trillions of gut microbes live. And when they ferment those fermentable carbohydrates, they make short-chain fatty acids in the process, namely one called butyrate, which we have a ton of research to show not only is butyrate critical for the health of the gut cell, like a lot of that butyrate gets sucked up into the gut cell and it's used as a fuel source, which is super cool, but also because butyrate interacts directly with our nervous system and our immune system, particularly my origin was in, you know, sort of like anti-inflammatory nutrition. And we know that butyrate helps the immune system deal with inflammation appropriately. So it turns on when we need it, but it doesn't go overboard. So is that just the inflammation that happens in that area or does it the same way it has 90% of, uh, I forget exactly what you said, but 90% yeah. of um Serotonin. Yeah. So, like, does it impact the inflammation throughout the body or just in certain areas? I like to say that your gut is not Vegas. What happens there does not stay there. So, you know, like, if it happens in the gut, it can initiate or exacerbate these issues throughout our body. And we see this in a lot of surprising ways. A really great example is for folks with type 2 diabetes. We know that there's significant chronic inflammation that occurs and it uh, contributes to insulin resistance in the tissues. And there is some connection between gut-associated inflammation and the chronic systemic inflammation that happens in type 2 diabetes. Well, I'm actually, I'm learning some new things here. I feel like the way you're delivering it, it's super accessible, but it also, it's really tying to the science of it. And one question I have, more of a curiosity question, you mentioned liver earlier. How does the liver and kidney play a role in the gut system? Is it part of the gut system? I'm curious about those two um, organs. Yeah, so the kidneys aren't often talked about a lot with respect to the digestive system, but the liver absolutely is. The liver uh, is, first off, sort of like a, a waste management system for the body, but it also helps to regulate blood sugar balance, and it also takes up and gets what we call first pass at a lot of nutrients that are absorbed into the body. So it's really important on sort of like that absorption and that level, but also bile. Many of us, if anyone's had their gallbladder removed, we hear a lot about bile because bile is really important to help us digest and absorb the fats that we eat. Without bile, it's really, really challenging to digest fats. But it's not the gallbladder that actually makes that bile. It's the liver. And the liver does so by pulling cholesterol out of the blood because cholesterol is a key component of bile salts. And so the liver pulls this cholesterol from our blood, makes the bile, it goes into the intestine when we need it to absorb fats. And then amazingly enough, because the body is just 
so beautifully designed, a lot of that can get reabsorbed and recycled. However, when we eat a lot of plant foods with all of their fibers, fibers can bind that bile and carry it out of the body, meaning that in order to make more bile, your liver is going to pull more cholesterol. So if you've ever heard that like soluble fiber, like eating your morning oats is good for lowering cholesterol, that's why. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, cholesterol is only found in animal products? Yeah. So dietary cholesterol, and this can be super confusing because we call okay. it the same thing, but there's two different things. So we have dietary cholesterol, 100%. If you're vegan, you are not getting any dietary cholesterol whatsoever because it only comes from animal foods. But what is important for blood cholesterol is actually the saturated fats that we eat. So when we eat a lot of saturated fats, our blood cholesterol can increase. And saturated fats in the plant-based and vegan world don't come from a lot of places. Like they're in small amounts in everyday plant foods, but really for us, we're talking most often about coconut oil. And so there's a lot of back and forth and a lot of controversy about coconut oil in the plant-based community with some folks saying, you know, it's a miracle, essentially like bathe yourself in it, take, you know, shots of it daily. But in reality, while we do have more of a budget for saturated fats in a plant-based diet because we're not eating animal products, we don't want to have a free-for-all on coconut oil either because it does increase blood cholesterol, just not to the extent that like butter does. And in terms of blood cholesterol, which is the one that people are on medication for? Is it the dietary or is it, I'm um, guessing, the blood cholesterol? Yeah, it's the blood cholesterol and specifically the LDL cholesterol, which the way that I always remembered it when I was in internship was LDL is lousy cholesterol and HDL is happy cholesterol. So HDL is actually a good type of cholesterol that helps to sort of like almost sort of like how the liver cleans things up. HDL helps to clean things up too, but LDL is the one that can be raised when we increase saturated fats in the diet. And that's the lousy cholesterol that we don't want because it can contribute to cardiovascular disease. So I'm glad you said that because you completely like have a paradigm shift right now because I always thought that the cholesterol that vegans aren't, you know, being introduced to because of our diet is the one that is the issue that people, you know, go to the doctor's office, but it, we can still have high cholesterol if we're consuming a lot of saturated fats in our diet. So how does the dietary cholesterol play a role? You know, why is that such an important talking point for vegans that you don't have cholesterol? Well, I think it's because the research and the evidence has changed. So even back when I did internship, which wasn't like forever ago, but it was like over a decade ago, we still talked about reducing dietary cholesterol because there was this idea that eat cholesterol, make cholesterol. But actually over the years, it's shaken out that it is saturated fat that is probably a more important driver. We don't want to eat more cholesterol. Like, Again, as a dietitian, I wouldn't be like, eat more cholesterol. No, not at all. Uh, but we know that saturated fat is actually a really critical driver. And so it's important for us to be mindful. But like I said, because we're not eating dairy products, we're not eating, you know, animal foods, we're going to get less saturated fats in our diets unless we are cooking everything three meals a day with coconut oil and like consuming 
all of our alternatives as coconut. And I, it's one of the reasons why I still like recommend extra virgin olive oil as your essential daily fat. Like that's what I, it's also the Portuguese in me. I have a Mediterranean blood running through my veins. And so that is the fat that I encourage people to use and to cook with on a daily basis because it's monounsaturated. We want to hear from you. Visit our website to ask a question, leave a comment, or tell us how much you love the show. We'll play some of your messages during the episode, as well as directly to our guests. So be sure to leave your name and city and visit SoFloVegans.com slash podcast. And, you know, when I heard the news about the coconut oil, it kind of like hurt, it kind of made me sad in my heart because I love making plantain. I call it plantain. A plantain, but yeah. plantain with coconut oil, like extra virgin coconut, unrefined coconut oil. I'll take like maybe two scoops, put it in the pot, make it melt down and put the plantain in there. But uh, yeah, I kind of been mindful about that and slow down on eating that because I could do that every single day. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad we can clear up, uh, especially for our listeners, mm-hmm. maybe dispel some misconceptions, or at least that I had around saturated mm-hmm. fats and cholesterol. So thank you for that, for that conversation. Mm-hmm. And let's talk a little bit about talk about another um, thing as well. Fats, you know, you touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, how do fats play a role in our gut? Yeah, you know, it's something that we don't talk about enough, which I find really interesting because we do actually have a pretty strong data set to tell us what fats do to our digestion and particular particularly to our gut microbiome. And so I think most of us focus on things like sugar and gluten, where we have far less evidence, almost no evidence to say that on their own, they're harmful to our gut microbiome. Whereas with fats, there are a few ways that they can potentially challenge. And, you know, just like with coconut oil, I always want to remind folks it's pattern over plate. Like if it's something you do, if you use a little bit of coconut oil, like a few times a week, and then the rest of your oils are you know, avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, or other plant oils, that's great. We don't want to remove these things from our diet. We just don't want to like consume them with abandon, thinking that they're like a panacea for for our health. So bringing back to the original question about how do fats affect your gut, there are a couple of ways. The first, we sort of made that connection between the liver and bile salts and fat digestion. We know that a dietary pattern that is high in fat can be potentially detrimental to our gut microbiome specifically, and maybe even the function of our gut barrier. So the idea of like the actual lining of cells that helps protect us from the outside world. Because most of us don't think of our gut as being the outside world, but like from entrance on through exit, it is actually continuous with the outside world. So compared to like the sterile state of our body, um, we need protection. And that's why so much of our immune activity is along this sort of gut border. And so when we consume a lot of fat, we're going to make a lot of bile salts because we need the bile salts to digest the fat. And what we know is that when there's a lot of bile salts in the gut, that can actually favor the growth of a specific kind of bacteria in our gut that love that bile salt environment. And they're not necessarily the best for us. 
The other thing that can happen as part of fat digestion, when we eat a lot of fat, um, I certainly don't, I am not on the advocacy side for like low fats or no oil. You know, like that's great if people want to make that choice, but I don't feel like the research supports it. But when we consume like a ton of fat, sort of like the standard American diet level of fat, the other thing that our body needs to digest and specifically absorb those fats, your gut is a watery environment. And so fat doesn't dissolve and sort of like like a watery environment. So that's one of the reasons why the bile salts is important. But then the other thing is to get the fats from the watery environment of the gut into the body your body packages them in these like little molecules called chylomicrons. They're essentially like little fat globules that help to shuttle it across so that you get that energy into your body. Totally normal, absolutely what you want. But when you eat a lot of fat and you make a lot of these chylomicrons, the chylomicrons can actually pick up little fragments of bacteria and shuttle them across too which is not what you want because those trillions of bacteria, as long as they stay in your gut, amazing. It's a party. <laughs> like they're so beneficial for you. There's so many incredible ways that our gut bacteria support our health. But once they breach that barrier, once they get into the rest of our body, our immune system is like, oh, hey, like that's not okay. Like we shouldn't have bacteria in here. And they turn on an inflammatory response to try to protect you. And so we see that high-fat diets are associated with a breaking down of that gut barrier, which can open us up to all sorts of inflammation that we don't want. So eat like a regular amount of fat, like even 30% of your diet from fat, fantastic. But we don't want to get into the sort of like American, standard American of like 40, 50, even more percent in fat. And does that play a role in um, the keto diet and why, you know, a lot of nutritionists are, you know, asking people to move away from that? Yeah, you know, what's so interesting about keto diets, you know, as a dietitian, I'm, I am all for new dietary approaches to help us clinically in practice. Because you'd be surprised that we don't actually have a lot of gold standard therapeutic diets. Like, the gluten-free diet in celiac disease, that's one. The low FODMAP diet in IBS, that's two. Like, not quite gold standard, but like real close. Diabetes, heart disease, we don't really have gold standard diets. So I'm always interested in ways that food can be used clinically. And for kids with epilepsy who don't respond to their medications, like, keto diets work for them. And there are actually ways to make them plant-based and to make them really healthful. The challenge with keto diets for the rest of us, particularly the way that the internet is promoting them, which is like, you know, bacon-wrapped cream cheese bites, incredibly detrimental to human health, raises cholesterol levels. You're going to be set up for tons of deficiencies. And we don't have the data yet because it's still so emerging to say what that's doing to our gut microbiome for sure. But definitely what we know about the low fiber intake and the high saturated fat intake that most folks will experience on a keto diet, we know that's absolutely detrimental to our uh, gut microbiome. And once again, I appreciate you showing both sides of it. You know, the fact that in certain cases, a keto diet can be beneficial. And then the fact that you can make adjustments to make it plant-based. So I like the the balance 
of your explanation. And since we're on that, um, let's talk about, let's go into a gluten. You know, I know a lot of people have gluten sensitivity. How does wheat and gluten play a role in the gut? Yeah. So my last cookbook, Eat More Plants, was fully gluten-free because, you know, we have a, a majority a digestive health practice and so many of our clients are gluten-free that I really wanted to make a cookbook that was super accessible to them. With Good For Your Gut, however, the recipes are all designed with research and also like, you know, how we use food in our clinical practice in mind. And so for folks who generally have good digestive health, like the occasional issue, but they're really like, generally I'm fine and I just want to stay fine or get better. I brought gluten back in because we have zero data to support that a healthy gut is impacted in any way, shape, or form negatively by consuming gluten. What is most likely is the ways and the forms in which we consume it. Refined flours without their fiber, you know, coupled with the salt and the fat and the sugar, like all of those things. We know that's not great for gut health, but gluten in and of itself. And so consuming wheat berries or sprouted grain bread with all of their fibers, and particularly wheat, there are substances in wheat. You know, we talked about your gut bacteria making those awesome short chain fatty acids that are so beneficial for you. There are compounds in wheat known as arabinoxylans that are specific drivers of butyrate. So like if we willy-nilly take gluten out of our diet, we could be missing out on a whole bunch of things that help feed our gut microbiome. For folks with celiac disease, which is an autoimmune disease that is triggered when you eat gluten, you have to avoid it so strictly. And then we also have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And so those folks don't appear to have celiac disease, at least yet, but it's very clear that when we take gluten out of their diet, their symptoms resolve. We don't know exactly why in non-celiac uh, gluten sensitivity, why gluten might be an issue. But what we know from celiac disease is that gluten contains, gluten is a type of protein that we don't fully digest and absorb. Because anything we fully digest and absorb well, it's not in our gut anymore. It can't interact with the gut tissues. It's not going to get fermented by your gut bacteria. So it's like a non-issue. But gluten has a really interesting structure. So the amino acids in it are difficult for our body to break down fully. So it comes into contact with our gut. It comes into contact with our gut microbiome. And we know in celiac disease that gluten, those gluten fragments coming in contact with our gut initiates a cascade where our gut barrier actually becomes what we call quote-unquote leaky. So instead of being that tight barrier between you and the outside world, there's little leaks, little spaces in that gut barrier, and then your immune system is like, what? Like, what is all this stuff I have never seen before? This is not okay. The inflammation turns on and the gut surface becomes really damaged. And, and that's something I hear a lot of about, you know, leaky gut. I know there's another way of saying that, but how does that present itself in someone? Is it genetic? Is it, you know, the food, certain foods that we eat can lead us down that road? Like how, how does one develop that? Yeah. You know, leaky gut or, you know, as it, we call it in health or like in the research gut barrier dysfunction. So it's really like your gut barrier is not functioning properly. 
it's it's a bit of an anomaly because a we know that it occurs we know that it occurs and is associated with so many different chronic conditions like everything from celiac disease which you'd expect to the inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's and colitis totally expect that but also conditions like type 2 diabetes which is very unexpected also in liver disease very you know you're like oh wow okay so this gut barrier is faulty and the liver is not doing well so what's actually going on in many cases we don't know and what i see online and particularly in wellness circles is this idea of a leaky gut syndrome which leaky gut is not a diagnosis it's like going to the doc and your doc being like oh you have a runny nose you have runny nose syndrome. And you're like, no, wait a second. Like something is causing the runny nose. Like I have a cold, I have the flu, I have seasonal allergies. So telling someone they have a runny nose is like, well, thanks, Captain Obvious. (laughs) Like that doesn't help me understand like what's going on in my body. And so leaky gut is the same. So we have to figure out why someone has leaky gut. And the other thing that's really challenging is that and particularly with respect to medicine and getting clear diagnoses around these things, is we don't sort of have gold standard testing. Like if you go to the naturopath, they might test you for something called zonulin. And I mentioned that zonulin with respect to celiac disease. And so if your zonulin's high, they're like, oop, you got leaky gut, and then like go on the super restrictive diet. (laughs) But we don't have research for those diets. And there is some question whether a zonulin test can actually tell you if you have leaky gut. A breath test is actually closer to the gold standard and you can't access breath tests that often. It's particularly here in Canada, our our medical system works a little differently. Like it's really hard to get a breath test. Whereas I know in the US, um, you have more access to physicians who will do that kind of thing and like actually diagnose these problems for you. So speaking of problems that occur and that have names, IBS, irritable, irritable bowel syndrome, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that, um, how that presents itself? Yeah, so I am part of the IBS club, which, you know, I wouldn't say started my interest. I was already sort of working in gut health, but it really deepened my curiosity and also my compassion for folks who are going through this. Irritable bowel syndrome is really a constellation of symptoms and a constellation of potential root causes. So a couple of things that we know in IBS, which affects like roughly 10 to 12% of us in Canada, that number might be even as high as 18%, according to some recent statistics, uh, that the movement or motility of the gut is off. So it could be too fast, it could be too slow, you end up being constipated, or it can be super erratic. We also know that the nervous system is off, not just in that movement, but also in how we experience pain. So people with IBS experience near daily pain based on the normal function of their gut. It causes them a lot of pain because the nervous system gets a little bit rewired. The other thing that we know in IBS is that the gut microbiome is off. So those things are kind of like the standard, but we can also see leaky gut in IBS. We can also see chronic inflammation in IBS. You could have 
what you think is IBS, but actually it's what I call BAD, which is like the greatest acronym in all of digestive health. BAD is bile acid diarrhea. So we talked about those bile acids before with the gut microbiome. Sometimes your body doesn't handle bile acids very well and it causes a lot of diarrhea. So you think you have IBS, but actually if you get it diagnosed properly, you can take a medication that binds up those bile salts and like, like magic, your quote unquote IBS goes away. So my guess is that if you are experiencing these, what's the best, I mean, it sounds obvious, but like if you are experiencing any issues in your stomach, um, in your gut, um, what's the best way to go about figuring out, you know, what to do next to even how to have a conversation with your with the gastroenterologist, with a general practitioner, or, or gastroenterologist. Yeah. How do you say? Enterologist, gastroenterologist. I know that one me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the first thing is if you know, really, like, and I will be super nerdy and use this cliche, but like, trust your gut. You're like something is not right here. This is affecting me daily. Get to your doc. So the first thing that's really helpful is to like keep a list of your symptoms. Like, what are you experiencing? Because sometimes we get to the doctor and we like clam up and we don't say all of the things. So, you know, really take a week and be like, what symptoms am I experiencing? How often? Like, am I going to the bathroom like six times a day? Not normal. Like not in any case is that normal. Am I like getting painful bloating every single day? Like write those symptoms down and then go to the doc. You want to make sure that you don't have celiac disease. It's a really easy blood test. So like take that off the table. You want to make sure that you don't have the inflammatory bowel diseases. Your gastroenterologist will help rule those out. And then it might be IBS. And if it's IBS, which we know is something called a disorder of gut-brain communication, gut-brain communication, like that's what the the condition is about. Nutrition is going to have a role to play, which is why I wrote Good for Your Gut, obviously, but it's got to be holistic. Anytime we are supporting our digestive health, it has to be holistic. Stress has a massive negative impact on our digestive well-being because remember the nervous system like determines so many things. It's how our gut moves, our experience of pain in the gut, even the digestive secretion. So things like stomach acid and digestive enzymes, like you need a like healthy into nervous system for that. So the low FODMAP diet can be effective in like 70% of people with irritable bowel syndrome. If that feels available and affordable and like in your bandwidth to like take on this kind of a therapeutic diet, definitely try it. But if you don't, Start with the basics. So try and get more vegetables onto your plate. Try and slowly increase your fiber. I always say you got to train your gut for like a high fiber life, like you train your legs for a marathon, right? Slowly and consistency, consistently over time. Wait to feel better and then add more. The other thing that you need to consider is like daily stress management. It's a non-negotiable. Whether you pop on a free meditation app while you're like on your bus commute or you go for a walk in the evening after dinner to get some movement and like leave your phone at home and just like get some like literal fresh air for your body and mind. Stress management has to be a part of that too. And as we wrap a lot of invaluable information in this podcast, and as we wrap up the episode, 
I know you have a daily three. Am I saying that correct? Would you yeah. mind sharing, sharing a little bit more about our to our audience about that? For sure. So, you know, I think, you know, for the vast majority of us, we make nutrition more complicated than it has to be. Of course, if you need a therapeutic approach because you've got something going on in your body, that's different. But the most of us, you know, some of the best advice is simply to eat more plants. And people are like, oh, but but then what do I do? And so I created something called the Daily Three to offer a soft structure. I prefer to practice what I call positive additive nutrition because I think most of us associate nutrition with deprivation or elimination, and that's not the case. Instead, I like to talk about what to eat more of, but make it like really doable and not overwhelming. So the Daily Three are three foods that I think are really critical to health and that we don't eat enough of. And that is leafy green vegetables, like everything from arugula, broccoli, kale, bok choy, gailan, green leafy vegetables, legumes, so chickpeas, lentils, you know, mung beans, all the like, and then omega-3 rich seeds, chia, ground flax, hemp hearts. And if people are like, I just need to get more plants into my life, I don't know where to start, I don't have time or attention to like completely overhaul my diet, two to three tablespoons of one of those seeds every single day add it to a smoothie, oatmeal, sprinkle it on a salad, whatever you need, super easy. Then a quarter to three quarters of cups of beans. If you're new to beans, you got to start low and slow. You're going to be like, no, I want to be like all in tomorrow. You're going to hate me if you do. Start with a quarter cup of lentils. Add them to your soup. Add them to whatever you're eating. Wait for your gut to adjust. Then take it up to a half cup. Then take it up to three quarter cup when you're ready to minimize digestive symptoms. And then two cups of leafy green vegetables every day. Whatever's available, affordable to you, frozen is awesome. Just get those on your plate and you will boost the nutrient density of your everyday diet by miles and hopefully be feeling real good real soon. And before we officially close out the episode with from your heart segment with the from your heart segment, let us know where we can find all of the deets where we can get the book, where we can learn more about mm -hmm. yourself, all that good stuff. I have a website filled with very nerdy, very nerdy deep dive posts into everything from like nutrition for lupus to ulcerative colitis to even like what causes bloating and what do I do about it. All of that is at Desiree RD, like registered dietitian.com. I also have a page for Good for Your Gut that will help you link out to like your local indie bookstore or Amazon or Barnes and Noble, like whatever is most convenient for you. And then you can find me on Instagram, Desiree Nielsen RD, and TikTok even, although like I'm still new, be gentle with me, <laughs> Desiree Nielsen Nutrition. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show, for sharing all the knowledge, for being patient with me <laughs> in more than one ways. But I learned a lot. I, I, you know, you go into something thinking that, you know, you've heard everything there is. But the fact that, you know, you answered some of the questions that I didn't even know I had questions about until we had the conversation. I hopefully our listeners picked up on that as well. So thank you so much for that. And. That leads us to our last segment where we like to give our guests an opportunity to drop from the headspace. You know, there's a lot of knowledge that you want to disseminate for our listeners, but just go from that headspace to that heart space and just share a message with our audience to 
to close out the podcast. So I'm going to yield the floor to you and uh, thank you once again. Yeah, thank you for all that you do, Sean, for helping to like bring this vegan community together. I think, you know, particularly as a dietitian, we all strive when we wake up in the morning to live our best life and feel our best. And, you know, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to help share and create a space where people can learn more and hopefully take care of themselves in a better way. But one of the things that I notice in nutrition is how hard we are on ourselves. I mean, I think our our structures and our systems are just built up to tell us we're not good enough. You're not doing enough. Oh, you would be better if you did X, Y, or Z. And so, you know, particularly if people are listening to an hour about nutrition and all the ways that they can eat to help them feel well, what I really want people to hear is that, like, you are already good enough. And you do not need to feel any amount of guilt or shame around your food choices. We are all just showing up, doing our best every single day. And my my sort of like challenge to people would be, one, don't be so dang hard on yourself. But two, what's just one thing? Like what is just one thing that you can do today to truly take care of yourself? And that might have nothing to do with nutrition. Like maybe you're going to eat an orange But maybe you're going to put your phone away and go to bed an hour earlier. We have so much coming at us on a daily basis that I think what we all really need in order to truly be well is like more self-compassion. You've been listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. As you can see, our passion is to help people navigate the vegan lifestyle. Having on vegan experts from around the globe, Sean is the founder and, of course, the host of SoFlow Vegans, an organization created to help make South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, find us on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at SoFlow Vegans. Find the show and more at SoFlowVegans.com slash podcast. And for questions or comments, send an email to contact at SoFlowVegans.com. Our food is grown, not born. See you next time.